0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. Before I introduce today's show, I have some news about the podcast. We're increasing our pace from bi-weekly to weekly. We have too many opportunities for great interviews and compelling subjects to keep them in the twice-a-month format. So now you can download a new ideas-filled episode every week. Thanks to the great team here at Brookings for making this happen. And stay tuned in this episode to hear our regular update on what's happening in Congress. With me in the studio today are experts Homi Karas and John MacArthur. They are two of the principal authors of a new report and online project called Ending Rural Hunger Mapping Needs and Actions for Food and Nutrition Security, found online at endingruralhunger.org. Homi is a senior fellow and deputy director of the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings. He is a prolific writer on development economics, the effect of aid on developing countries, and global governance. His most recent books are The Last Mile in Ending Extreme Poverty, on which he is a co-editor, and Getting to Scale, How to Bring Development Solutions to Millions of Poor People. Before joining Brookings, Homie spent over 25 years as an economist at the World Bank. John is a senior fellow both here at Brookings and at the UN Foundation. He has written on agriculture and rural development, poverty reduction, economic growth, and global health. John previously served as manager and deputy director of former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan's independent advisory body on implementing an action plan for achieving the Millennium Development Goals. And he was CEO of the Millennium Promise Alliance. Thank you both for joining me today. Let's start with uh, the big picture. What are the sustainable development goals that we've heard about and where does ending rural hunger fit into them? John? I'll go first. Okay, great.
1: (laughs) Homie and I both worked on this issue quite a bit. These global goals for sustainable development, as they're becoming known, are the world's agreed agenda for 2030. These are targets set uh, by world leaders adopted at the United Nations in September uh, 2015, and they set three basic categories of objectives. The first is to end extreme poverty in its many forms. That includes income poverty. It also includes hunger. It includes issues like lack of basic access to healthcare. Uh, But the second category is tackling social exclusion, inequality, uh, making sure that there's prosperity for all, so-called leave no one behind in every society, not just those that are facing extreme poverty. And then the third category is the global environment. It's climate, it's oceans, it's biodiversity. It's these aspects of natural capital that go into successful societies and successful economies.
0: And these
1: goals, there are 17 of them, uh, were set for 2030.
0: You wrote a blog post on our website recently where your mother expressed her views about uh, the number 17. Can you explain that real quick?
1: Yeah. So the day these goals were formally set by the negotiators, August 2nd, uh, all of a sudden I had to give a couple of speeches the next week to explain what they were. And it wasn't just an agenda. It was 17 actual goals. So happened to call my mom, she lives in Vancouver where I grew up and said, uh, you know, the end of extreme poverty, the world has agreed to do this by 2030. It's extraordinary. She said, wow, that sounds exciting. How cool. And I said, it is, there's only one problem. She said, what's that? I said, these goals, there's 17 of them. <laughs> I'm not sure how to explain them. And the background to that is that a lot of people have been saying, are there too many goals? Are there you know, just too much? Uh, are there too many things on the agenda for the world? And my mom, very interestingly, said, 17, that's a great number. <laughs> and I said, wow, you're the first person to say that. Why, why is 17 great? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, sounds like they didn't fake it. The world's complicated. And it was really interesting because I then – ad libbed that story when I was giving a slightly more technical, but speech to people who don't live in the policy circles a few days later. And the one thing people kept coming up to me the next couple of days saying is, oh, it's like your mom said, the world's complicated. People feel this. They understand it. They know the world is complicated. And these goals basically allow a way for people, whether they care about hunger, whether they care about girls' education, whether they care about climate, whether they care about successful cities, for them to see how their priorities connect with the world's priorities. And I think it's, uh, it was quite an elegant insight, which just reminded me, you always got to check back home if you want to understand what's really going on in the world.
0: I'll put a link to that uh, blog post in our show notes. Homie, in the title of the report are, is the phrase food and nutrition security. It's sometimes abbreviated FNS. Can you explain what that means? So I
2: think that the uh, uh, second uh, goal was uh, defined as being an effort to uh, achieve food and nutrition security, uh, which is uh, uh, really a statement that uh, if you want to uh, think about uh, poverty, you can think about it in terms of income levels, you can think about it in terms of access to uh, education, but very fundamentally you also have to think of it in terms of uh, food. And you have to uh, ask, do people have enough food to uh, eat? And Do they have access to a healthy uh, diet? So that's the food and uh, nutrition uh, uh, part. And the way in which that's been uh, tackled in the uh, Global Goals is by uh, setting out a number of different uh, targets for food and nutrition security. So one target is uh, to uh, end undernourishment. That means basically getting enough calories to uh, eat. Another target is to end malnutrition. That means making sure that you're eating the right things. A third target, which is slightly different, is to double the productivity of smallholder farmers. And that basically recognizes the fact that most of the hungry people in the world are actually farmers, uh, paradoxically. They're people producing food. They just don't produce enough of it. And until we manage to get their productivity and yield levels uh, up, the chances for them being able to access food are actually quite slim. And then finally, there's a uh, target that uh, we address in uh, this report on uh, doing all of this in a sustainable way. And by a sustainable way, what we mean is uh, uh, a way that actually uh, also helps one of the biggest threats to hunger, which is climate change. And agriculture, animal husbandry are actually big contributors to climate change. uh, There's a lot of uh, emissions of uh, carbon. But even more importantly, it's probably the area where the biggest reductions in carbon emissions could happen at a relatively low cost. So linking the food and agriculture systems to the climate change systems is an integral part of these global goals. And
0: why do you make a distinction for rural hunger? Is that opposed to urban hunger?
2: When we looked into uh, this, it became very clear that the kind of policy uh, uh, actions that would be uh, required were completely different for rural areas and as for uh, urban areas. So it is the case, that there is a large and growing problem of food insecurity in urban areas. And certainly in developed countries, the principal aspects of food insecurity are in urban areas, they're in cities. But the kinds of interventions are uh, not agricultural interventions, they're really about how do we get money, food, healthy food uh, to people living uh, uh, living in cities. And at the moment, uh, it seems that probably about three-quarters of the uh, problem that we're dealing with globally is actually in rural areas. So we decided this is too complicated to take on the uh, full ending world hunger. Let's take a uh, piece of this, which is ending rural hunger, recognizing that that's only three-quarters of the uh, problem and not the big problem in most of the developed world. In from the report, I, I see... Uh... It's about 800 million people
0: in the world are undernourished. So three-quarters of those would be about 600 million in rural areas. Uh, And 160 million children under the age of five are stunted. There's a lot of great data in this report. Uh, John, let me ask you this. Are the rural undernourished people that are the focus of this work concentrated in any particular region or regions in the world?
1: The biggest challenge is undoubtedly in Africa, not exclusively but uh, it's the toughest problem, in my view. That's where the n- absolute numbers of hungry people are still rising. Even if they're shrinking as a share of the population, the population is growing so fast that the number of hungry people, it's the one part of the world where it's growing. What we see is that there's what I would call the double-barreled gains of focusing on agriculture in these places and farm productivity, which is what we spend a lot of time on this report. If you want to uh, get the economies going, get the households uh, to do better, you need to help them produce more food. Uh, By doing so, you can help uh, increase their de facto income if they're more productive. You can also uh, help increase their real income if they're able to sell more. And in the process, then you can actually even help free them up to get better paying jobs off the farm. And so Africa is the one part of the world that hasn't had a so-called green revolution in its farm productivity. Uh, There are early signs, what I would call green shoots of a green revolution in a few countries, but uh, it's the one part of the world that hasn't had that. And that's important, not just for understanding hunger, but also for understanding the poverty challenge, which is deeply interwoven with hunger. Now, that's not the only place in the world with hunger issues, and we see... In uh, South Asia, for example, there's still tremendous problems. India still has tremendous problems. There's, for example, there's hosts of measurement issues as to what are we really measuring? Uh, How come some places have uh, less undernourishment, more uh, stunting and and indicators of malnourishment? Uh, These are, you know, tricky problems and come down to issues of nutrition as much as food availability. Uh, But that's part of why we take great I think pains in this report not to say there's any single issue there are multiple issues and each country has its own type of challenge in defining its needs and then each country has its own um, current state of play in terms of the policies that they're tackling to address them homie probably has his own views too
2: Well, I think that's exactly uh, right, John. Uh, uh, There are these uh, four different dimensions of uh, hunger at the country uh, level that have been identified in the uh, global goals. And what we found is that uh, every country has their own uh, specific uh, problems and challenges. So India, which is today a middle-income country, actually has worse uh, nutrition statistics than many sub-Saharan African countries that are low-income countries. Uh, We found that in countries in the uh, Middle East and North Africa, uh, not surprisingly, are amongst the uh, countries with the greatest challenges in dealing with the potential impact of uh, climate change on their agricultural uh, systems. And uh, so that's going to be a uh, bigger and bigger problem in the uh, future. So when you think about hunger... You can't just think along a uh, single dimension. You have to think around uh, multiple dimensions. And then what we find is that different countries tend to be uh, uh, adversely affected uh, in uh, different ways along each of these dimensions. And what I think that means is that really there is a challenge in almost every country. Uh, The big question is be sure that you identify the right challenge and make sure that you focus your priorities in that way. And I would just add,
1: I think part of our meta ambition here is just to establish a clear-headed evidence base on what are the problems we're trying to solve. If we take these goals and targets that the world has set seriously, what does that imply if we pull together the best available data? Uh, How can we measure that? Or how can the practitioners and analysts in each country and each institution assess that more systematically? And one of the things we found is that the reference base for even having this conversation, needs to be strengthened. So we hope that this you know produces a next layer of clarity for
0: taking on those discussions. Right. That's what strikes me as very uh, unique and value-added about this report and the online tool that you put together. We're not just talking here about, say, food aid in the, uh, say in the 1980s since where we're going to send bags of food to hungry people around the world. You looked at 116 developing countries, 29 developed countries – You have a range of, I think, 80 or more indicators um, across these three major themes. Homi, you talked about um, these four uh, sub-goals in ending hunger. It's a really comprehensive and deep look at um, the variety of aspects of the problem. How do you actually do the work? How do you study this problem? What's the mechanism?
2: Well, I think the first mechanism is really to uh, put together the uh, data and the evidence. And uh, that is uh, actually more uh, complicated than it uh, might seem uh, because we just simply have not invested enough uh, globally in getting uh, good enough uh, information. So uh, there are a a range of uh, uh, studies. Uh, Very few of them cover all countries, so there are lots of missing variables. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't have useful and important information for just a few countries. So what we've had to do is to uh, draw evidence from a number of different sources and then develop statistical techniques so that you can combine those into uh, uh, more aggregate indices which have some useful information to policymakers. And it turns out that we need information at lots of different levels. I think for a policymaker you need to be able to have a, uh, a quick summary of the uh, evidence. If you just present them with, uh, you know, the uh, 116 indicators that we uh, have, they get lost. So you need to have something which is aggregated in order to be able to tell the policy story and get the political attention and leadership that's necessary – But then you also need to be able to tell the technical story of drilling down when they then say, okay, now you've persuaded me that this should be a priority. What do I do? And that meant that we had to collect information not just on what's happening to hunger, but also information about what's happening to the drivers of change. And we divided those into uh, two. One we called policies and institutional commitment. That's about what countries are doing themselves to try to make sure that the, their own domestic environment is as helpful as possible to improving the situation. And then on the resources side, I think we've put together the most comprehensive database of all of the different kinds of uh, investments uh, that are being made in the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, challenge of uh, ending uh, hunger and uh, tried to add those up so that you can identify here are places where uh, we've really underinvested uh, massively and we've drawn I think very strong correlations between policies and good policies and low needs and public investments high public investments and low needs so while money doesn't solve all problems Few problems get solved without money. Mm -hmm. So what we've tried to do is say you have to look at the money, but the money will only be effective if the policy environment is also right. So that means you have to look at the policy environment. So we've tried to combine these three things of needs, policies, and resources into a framework for really looking at uh, uh, this, uh, this problem.
1: And one of the interesting points that Homi actually made in the context of this big global goals conversation is we had to look at these dozens and dozens of indicators just to understand one problem uh, or one dimension of one problem, the rural side of global hunger. You know, There's a big global conversation right now on what should be the indicators for these sustainable development goals. And people are asking, should there be 100? Should there be 200? Is that too many? Well, we've shown that even for one... (laughs) problem, you need that order of magnitude of indicators just to understand it. And so this notion of uh, what, again, Homi started a whole global conversation a couple of years ago around a data revolution, I think this is really both drawing attention to the need for stronger and better data, but also the need for a more comprehensive and (laughs) open-minded approach to what types of data do we really need and do decision makers really need in order to tackle the specificity of their local issues.
2: Let me give you one example, uh, Fred. Uh, uh, One of the uh, goals is to actually double the productivity Mm -hmm. of smallholder farmers. Well, it turns out that we neither have a uh, well-accepted definition of what a smallholder farmer is, nor do we have any global... uh, measurements of their productivity. So how are we going to possibly double smallholder productivity if we haven't done the groundwork of getting agreement on what is a smallholder and what is their productivity? That's the kind of, uh, I think, gap in data and information that part of our our project has been to identify the big data gaps with the hope that people will then invest in these and develop the benchmarks as well as pulling together all of the uh, data that does actually exist.
1: Right. Although the concept of doubling productivity is a good one.
2: Yes, it <laughs> I think is. I we'd argue.
1: We're not arguing it's the concept. It's just that it flags the need to measure, measure it it. much, much better.
0: Right. Let me draw attention to another aspect of the report. We, we often focus on the, uh, the need side. Uh, in your report, you also focus on the uh, provision of aid side. You, you look at the uh, developed countries. Uh, there's about 30 of them. Uh, you, you write in the report that they disperse in the aggregate about three cents for every $100 in aggregate income for food nutrition s- security, excluding humanitarian emergency food aid. Can you talk about uh, that side of the equation and what you find in your report?
2: Well, I think that people uh, look to the... Uh richest countries in the uh, world to try to uh, provide some of the resources that will be needed to solve some of these great global challenges. And I think the uh, remarkable thing that we found is that for all of the high rhetoric about the uh, appalling uh, uh, nature of hunger in the world today, People actually don't do much to try to solve this problem other than talk about it. So the amount of the resources that are going into food and nutrition security is tiny. And the rich developed countries understand that it is important to put money into agricultural systems. They put $250 billion per year into their own agricultural systems where only about 30 million people live. For developing countries, they only provide $11 billion per year in aid. And 3 billion people live and survive in rural areas in those uh, places. So the size of the imbalance of how resources are being allocated is just massive. And in addition... Developed countries not only put money into their own uh, uh, systems, they also protect their own agricultural uh, systems, so they're distorting global food markets, which leads to more inefficiencies in how monies are allocated uh, across and uh, within countries. If we can't make progress on getting agricultural markets to work better, both globally and within countries, there is no chance of actually achieving the goal of ending hunger.
1: And I would, just to build on that, I would add that uh, these numbers are so discordant, the big number for domestic subsidies and protection in the rich countries compared to the, the global support for food and nutrition security. Even though those are in some ways apple to oranges comparisons and we don't want them to be a false comparison, they absolutely show that the money is available. <laughs> So, this isn't a question of whether it's doable. And I think that one of the other points we draw attention to is in the multilateral system and the international efforts, there's a lot of initiatives, a lot of cooperation, many of them very well intended, many of them doing good things. But I think of it as uh, each time building half a bridge across the river. It doesn't matter how many half bridges you build if you never get to the other side. And so, one of our points is that these international efforts, we don't need more of them. We need stronger ones. And each of these could be strengthened so that we get across each river where where there's a destination on the other side, uh, but also so that we're thinking much more systematically, again, informed by this evidence of what's the problem that each partnership or institution is actually trying to solve? And how do we get feedback mechanisms in place so that we can track how they're doing?
0: I think a a lot of People in, especially in developed countries, might think that their tax dollars are just going to those bags of food that we used to see on on the screen. Now, you referenced Tommy earlier um, the concept of sustainability. How can we promote sustainable and transformational food programs rather
2: than just sending food aid? Well, I think if we start with uh, Africa, for example, and you look at the uh, extremely low levels of uh, yields uh, that African farmers uh, uh, produce, uh, the answers are actually quite well known. Uh, In Africa, uh, and this is research that John has done uh, extensively, there is very limited use of fertilizer, and the reason One reason why there is such limited use of fertilizer is because fertilizer is expensive because it all has to be imported. There are very few fertilizer plants in Africa, and yet a lot of the energy and the phosphates that are the basic ingredients of fertilizer all come from Africa, so... You need to have more fertilizer. You need to have uh, transport networks to uh, actually get food from farms to markets. You need to have much more irrigation. You need to have uh, electric power so that uh, farmers can do uh, basic uh, threshing and harvesting uh, more uh, efficiently. So uh, there are lots of investments, I would say, that can be done in making the food and agriculture systems in Africa much, much more uh, efficient and effective. And a number of African countries have shown that you can do this. So I think that for us, one of the really exciting opportunities right now is to take those examples and experiences and say, now what we really need to do is replicate this and build it out. We need to have government science and extension uh, services so that modern seed varieties can be uh, used. Uh, We know how to uh, be able to uh, help farmers identify what pests are uh, eating their crops. We know better techniques so that when droughts come, it won't wipe out the uh, crops entirely. All of these kinds of things are have been shown to be effective with very high returns in different places in Africa, and now we really need to uh, scale this up.
1: And I would just add to that, one of the things that I found so striking when I first started to study these issues in more depth many years ago is that in the advanced economies, we're so used to thinking of farms as, and farmers as selling everything they produce because uh, that's the way our economies work. Well, in the poorest parts of the world, especially in Africa, people eat most of what they produce. And because their farms are often so unproductive, they still have to buy a lot of food. And so these are very, very difficult environments, uh, very little cash often in the economy. And it's very important to understand just how hard it is to make a living from farming when you're not even able to grow enough to feed your own family. And that has many, many repercussions, including... Uh, you know, the fact that there's no tax base to build the roads. Well, exactly as Homi said, one of the reasons why fertilizer is so expensive in these rural parts of Africa is because the transport costs are so high. And so we need to make sure there's better roads. But the other thing I would just flag is that the, the physicality of agriculture is I think a, a element that's not appreciated broadly enough. So <clears throat> each cramp, just like in, or pardon me, each crop, just like in our own gardens, Uh, is different. And so different crops grow in different places. And the conditions of soil and water and temperature and light that contribute to each plant growing are different. And it's a little different in that way than say, uh, health systems where the human body tends to react pretty similarly to different treatments and different uh, pathogens. Plants, and some of them in particular, uh, don't can't just be transported from one place to the next in the way they grow. And so this is why the science part of what Homi was discussing is so important in making sure that, you know, all plants need light, water, and nutrients. Uh, But they also will do better under different conditions. And helping find the local ways that different plants can do better is the simplest proposition that the world isn't yet so good at following through on. And it's made big gains in many parts of the world. This was the story of the green revolution in Asia, uh, but also a lot of lessons on mistakes from that: too many fertilizers in a lot of places, uh, you know, too many runoffs into the water system. So it's not to just blindly replicate. But we need to understand that in a place like Africa, the crops are so diverse and so specialized and and so localized that we really need to be investing not just in the, the economic networks like transport, but also these scientific networks that can help, you know, the local farmers do what they need to do best.
0: And now let's take a quick break to find out what's happening in Congress.
3: As Congress comes back from recess, it has some very big, very serious issues to deal with right off the bat. This week, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was called before the Benghazi Special Committee to testify about a variety of topics, including her participation as a member of President Obama's foreign policy team around the Benghazi terrorist attacks, as well as an investigation into her use of a private server for her email. In the past few weeks, the Benghazi Committee has come under serious fire about its politicization and its real purpose, and Clinton's testimony before that committee has been considered one of the major moments in the committee's history. In addition to Clinton's appearance before the committee, Congress has quite a bit on its agenda. Primarily, the House of Representatives has to elect a new speaker. Since Speaker John Boehner announced his resignation, the House has been thrown into turmoil— Once House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy withdrew his name from consideration, it became unclear who would succeed Boehner in a series of negotiations and failed negotiations among House Republicans has failed to produce a successor. The House comes back this week with Republicans hoping to find a nominee for that position. Many Republicans are hoping that that person is Paul Ryan, but it's unclear whether Ryan wants the position. Finally, The nation ticks closer to the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling will be hit in the first few days of November, and it is incumbent upon Congress to pass a bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. Speaker John Boehner has indicated that one of his final acts as Speaker may be to pass a clean debt ceiling raise bill, but House Republicans and even Senate Republicans are considering blocking that measure. If the Congress is unable to come to an agreement before the early November, the United States will, for the first time in its history, default on its debt. A serious macroeconomic impact would certainly ensue, and many in Congress are hoping to be able to avoid that situation. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress.
0: Thanks, John. And now we're back with Homi Karas and John MacArthur. Let me me switch gears a little bit uh, and ask you both to comment on the, the different sectors that are involved here. We talk a lot about government level. We talk about the multilateral institutions like the United Nations. But there's, there's many more stakeholders involved in this overall approach to ending hunger, to ending rural hunger. Can, can you talk about the different kinds of groups that are involved
2: one of the things that uh, we emphasize is the idea that markets can really be a very powerful mechanism for improving the opportunities for uh, farmers both to uh, sell their uh, products and to uh, be able to uh, buy a sufficiently diverse uh, set of, uh, uh, of uh, food in order to have a uh, healthy diet. So as soon as you start to think about markets, I think you have to think about uh, smallholder farmers as being small businesses. And one of the ways that small businesses thrive is when they hook up with larger businesses into value chains. So a lot of the excitement in uh, uh, this uh, uh, challenge of uh, ending hunger is how do we bring small farms into uh, value chains? And I think that that's starting to uh, happen. Farmers are being organized into uh, cooperatives. The uh, larger, uh, not just uh, uh, farms, but uh, the uh, uh, supermarkets and distribution chains that are sourcing from uh, uh, different places are starting to provide standardization uh, so that one can tell exactly what quality is there. They provide credit. They provide some of the seeds. uh, So they can do a lot to actually boost productivity, and to make the markets work. Then at a slightly different level, I think you've got multilateral institutions. Multilateral institutions can help to encourage governments to do the right thing so that the investments that private businesses make are actually productive and happen. And we've seen... uh, in many developing countries, historically, a major bias against agriculture in their policies. Agriculture was thought of as being somehow not modern. Agriculture was part of a historical, uh, this is what underdeveloped countries do. Now that is, I think, really a, uh, a mindset that has changed. It's certainly not uh, a mindset that has any basis in reality. And there are very rich countries today, like New Zealand or Denmark or Australia, uh, whose health, economic health, is critically dependent on their agricultural systems. I mean, these are countries that have used agriculture to become rich. So it's possible to do that. So we need to get the multilateral institutions to also identify where are the policy changes that are needed, uh, including macroeconomic policy changes, including policy changes on corruption and governance that would unleash a lot of the private investment in uh, agriculture that, is, uh, that are going to be uh, required.
1: I think one of the interesting complicated new global challenges is the role of the global private sector in these areas and so the foreign direct investment questions are you know number one political issue in a lot of countries we actually pulled together i think uh, to our knowledge it's one of the first times that this has been done and incorporated in these resource assessments where we looked at uh, how much fdi foreign direct investment is going into these countries Turns out it's a little less than I would have predicted, but it is certainly significant in some countries. And we know that the deal flow is growing in a lot of places. And those are very sensitive issues. We have countries like Madagascar, where a major land deal was, you know, r- with foreign investors was significantly responsible for a government falling and even, uh, you know, throwing them out in a, in a pr- sense of tremendous upheaval. Uh, we have many countries where civil society wants to know that it's not just a land grab and how do you have a transparent approach to deal making uh, and in areas where the f- the foreign capital might provide a huge boost but on what terms and so this is part of a a new movement and the world committee on food security has adopted these new principles for responsible investment in this area last year those need to be implemented successfully in a way that people can all again measure have transparency around uh, no one's arguing against the role of capital, but uh, the wrong capital doesn't do the right things. And that's that's one big challenge. The other thing I'd, I'd stress is that, you know, as Homi said, that there's been this kind of oversight of agriculture, I would argue for a generation in the economics community. It's had a bit of a renaissance in the past 10 years. But one of the slightly subtle points here is that most people uh, who live on farms, the evidence suggests would love to move to a city and they'd love to have a job. And it's hard work working on a farm. Not everyone. A lot of people will always want to be farmers. It's wonderful, but a lot of people would love to have a paid job in a city and a different life. Uh, One of the best ways to free people up from farming is to boost the productivity of the farms. (laughs) And there's a macro phenomenon by which as the farms uh, produce more, as they produce more food to feed the rest of society, as they help build the savings and investment, this helps to kickstart the broader economic channels. And so when we're drawing attention to investing in agriculture, uh, I think it's important to stress, we're not saying it's because we're you know, romanticizing agriculture, it's because we're seeing this is a critical ingredient to broader success. That could be fused in some ways with cutting edge technology like mobile technology So what would M farming look like? I think this is a super exciting question where if we had broadband connectivity everywhere in the world and people's hands and their handsets, which might well be possible in a short number of years, how could that help with the extension services so that farmers can get tech support in ways where there's not enough uh, access to that right now? Could they take a, a photo of their crop and send it to somewhere around the world and say, you know, what fertilizer should I be adding? The yellows are le- or the leaves are yellow. That means you need more nitrogen. You know, this opens up hosts of opportunities we haven't thought of, and so this so-called traditional sector could be empowered in dramatic ways by the most modern of sectors with new entrepreneurial uh, opportunities that again we haven't even thought of yet.
2: The other uh, actor in uh, this now is uh, the uh, set of uh, emerging economies that are. Uh Uh, have themselves developed their uh, own domestic agriculture uh, systems and have a lot of really interesting lessons to uh, offer to other developing countries. So we looked at uh, Brazil, China, India, these large uh, developing uh, countries that have actually been uh, quite successful in improving their own uh, agriculture and uh, food systems and who are now really focusing on... uh, Uh, transferring these uh, lessons uh, to other countries. So uh, one of the big successes recently has been uh, Rwanda. And uh, in uh, Rwanda, they've uh, certainly uh, looked very hard at uh, uh, how China was able to uh, increase agricultural productivity in their uh, smallholder farmers and received uh, some assistance from them and uh, tried to uh, upgrade their agricultural systems accordingly.
0: Let me, let me close with posing this kind of open-ended question to you both, and that's, what gives you hope that the end of rural hunger is attainable?
1: I think the first thing to note is that the world is making progress. So roughly speaking, uh, undernourishment as a share of the world is dropping by about one percentage point every three years. So the Millennium Development Goal which we haven't had a chance to talk about, From uh, to cut hunger by half between 1990 and 2015, it's almost been achieved. So the estimates are imprecise, but it cut, dropped from around 25% to around 13% of the developing world. To get to the end of hunger by 2030, we need to basically triple the pace of progress. So what we've seen, and there are many things that give hope that that's Not uh, a fait accompli, far from it. It's a a lofty challenge. But there are many things like the boost in attention uh, that we've seen at places like the G8, the G20, and so forth. We've seen the launch of the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program. I would say these are many promising things. Uh, We've seen the long-term decline, even though far from done, of uh, distortions to agricultural markets in many economies. And, And we've seen, I think, a growing awareness that, you know, these are solvable problems rather than intractable problems. And so the bottom line, I think, is that the closer we get to broad recognition that the finish line is in sight, the more motivated more actors become to actually achieve it. And that's why we hope that a tool like this can help each relevant actor see, oh, what's my piece of the puzzle? And of course, I'd like to be part of ending hunger. What do we have to do?
2: Tommy. So I'm hopeful because I see that uh, across the world leaders are really becoming uh, excited about the uh, possibility of uh, ending hunger. I think that this uh, really uh, starts and ends with uh, leadership, leadership at the global level, leadership at national levels, leadership in uh, companies, uh, leadership of uh, civil society advocates, And for the first time, I think that we really have a uh, group of uh, leaders who are all committed to this uh, goal. So you have seen uh, leaders making these commitments uh, explicit. Uh, The most recent was in the uh, G7 meetings in uh, Germany at uh, Schloss Elmau. Uh, in uh, the case of uh, Africa, they uh, made them uh, explicit in uh, 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 it, uh, through uh, NEPAD. Uh, they have something called the Malabo uh, Declaration, which again uh, re-emphasized the uh, priority that uh, agriculture should have. You have uh, consumer goods uh, industries pledging to cut food waste in their value chains by half over the uh, next few years. You have civil society advocates now uh, talking about uh, how uh, uh, they can work with large companies to uh, uh, help them uh, uh, organize uh, smallholder cooperatives in a uh, much more... uh, uh, efficient uh, way and reduce the transaction costs of uh, dealing with uh, smallholders. You see a tremendous recommitment to resources of uh, uh, invested in uh, research in agriculture and new institutions like the, uh, uh, the uh, Green Revolution for uh, Africa uh, Alliance that will uh, deal w- with crops that are specific to Africa. You see insurance companies now starting to come in and say, we understand that agriculture is a risky business and the solution to a risky business is let's have some insurance. So I was on a uh, panel, uh, moderating a panel at uh, World Food Day, where the head of Swiss Ray, one of the largest insurance companies in the uh, world, said, we're ready to uh, think about uh, this business. So there just seem to be a whole range of uh, uh, leadership, technology, uh, and uh, resources coming together. And if we can organize that and sustain that commitment over the next fifteen years, then I'm very optimistic about the progress that can be achieved.
0: Well, Homi and John, I want to thank you both for taking the time to join me today, and thank you and your colleagues for your uh, your in-depth work on this. On this subject, you can learn more about the research, including all of the data and interactive tools at endingruralhunger.org. My thanks to our audio engineer, Zach Kolzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nitchi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Whale-Gergis. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time... I'm Fred Dews.